See that you don't tell this to anyone, he told the man healed of leprosy. Don't even go back into the village, he warned the newly sighted man from Bethsaida. You're the Messiah, said Peter. Be sure to keep that to yourself. Time and time again in the Gospels, Jesus insists on secrecy. Now this apparent reluctance to speak about his divinity has led some to conclude that Jesus wasn't in fact divine at all. Nor did he even think of himself as such. Richard Dawkins, you'll know his name by now, believes that Jesus was so non-committal that, and I quote, he would have been an atheist if he had known what we know today. Well, Dawkins might be on the extreme end of the spectrum, but in our pluralist society, there is, some, there is a strong t- trend to regard Jesus as a great spiritual leader and moral teacher, and nothing more. All that divinity stuff should be taking, taken with a big pinch of salt. And Christians are not immune to this. A number of polls taken at the last census indicated that a significant number of people who identified as Christian do not believe that Jesus was physically resurrected. Statistics can say anything, of course. But the truth is, there's a lot of muddy thinking about the resurrection. If we're honest, we don't know entirely what to make of it. Was it a physical thing or a spiritual thing? Is it to be taken literally or is it a metaphor? Well, Dawkins would no doubt argue that such questions are meaningless. For him, the evidence is obvious. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection, he says, are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Well, I don't know what special authority Dawkins has on this topic but I'm more inclined to listen to one who had a little bit of first-hand experience. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. So says Paul of Tarsus, who was the Dawkins of his day before he started that walk to Damascus. And you know, the two men have one other thing in common. They both agree that without the resurrection, a new creation of flesh and bone and spirit, Christianity is nothing. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Well, I suppose part of the problem for us is that the gospel accounts of the resurrection can raise more questions than answers. They're not exactly what we would expect. We know that the risen Christ was on earth for 40 days before his ascension, 
But according to the Gospels, he doesn't seem to do an awful lot in that time. They certainly don't tell us much. Matthew dedicates just 20 verses on the subject. Luke gives us a little more information, but not much. And Mark, well, you've heard what Mark says, just eight verses. That's not counting the extra bits that were added on sometime later. Even John, who begins his gospel with that epic poetry, ends with relatively unspectacular stories of the risen Christ, albeit rather more than his fellow gospel writers. So what's going on here? Well, to help us understand this a little, I think it might be good to pause on the ending of Mark's gospel, which I have surreptitiously added to our lectionary reading for today. And I thank you to Matthew for reading so much this morning. Because I think the ending of Mark reminds us that the reason the resurrection is so hard to believe is because it's true. You've heard how the story goes. The women arrive at the tomb with spices to anoint Jesus' body, only to discover that the tomb is empty. They are told to go immediately and tell the others what they have seen, but they don't. They don't say a word. Instead, Mark tells us, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now you'll appreciate This is not a neat and tidy ending. The gospel that began chapter 1, verse 1, proclaiming, and I quote, the good news of Jesus Messiah, the Son of God, ends in chapter 16, verse 8, with fear and trembling, stupefied silence. But of course, this peculiar ending has a point to it. The eagle-eyed among you will notice the dramatic irony of the women's silence. Because although Jesus insists on silence throughout the gospel, he never gets it. Not once. People always tell. But now, at the very end, when there's something important to speak about, when the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry has finally been achieved, when his followers are specifically, explicitly told to say something They say nothing. Stunned silence. The most important moment in the history of the world plays out before their eyes, and they don't want to talk about it. Why? Well, perhaps it's because Mark is making a point about the truth of the resurrection. As Rowan Williams explains, the women's sudden reluctance to speak reminds us of how God is always at work in the most surprising of ways. Here's what he says. Once it was a matter of how easy it would have been to tell the story of Jesus, the great leader and wonder worker. All the words were there, ready-made. But now, something has been made clear that has no ready-made words. God has acted in the pain and failure of Jesus and in his torture and execution. How are we to talk about that? Like the women at the tomb, we struggle to know how to talk about the resurrection. How on earth do we talk about this totally unique event to Jesus that is so completely surprising? 
It is something that has no historical precedent, no ready-made vocabulary to help us pin it down. It can be all too easy to slip into the trivial metaphors and theological cliches that Updike warns against in his poem, only to miss what the resurrection has to tell us about Jesus and his church. So how are we going to talk about the resurrection? Well, we must start by recognizing that if it is true, then it can't be easily talked about. This is perhaps why Mark and the other gospel writers say so little, or why the stories of the risen Christ seem so remarkably ordinary and uneventful. To speak easily about the resurrection would be to reduce it to fairy tale. The happy ending that we wish for after a bleak and bloody climax. But truth is never so neatly packaged. Rowan Williams puts it like this. The resurrection is a truth that can't easily be spoken. Or rather, as soon as it's spoken, it provokes more questioning. We can absorb such a truth only by letting go of what we thought we knew about God and about ourselves. But isn't this what Mark and the other gospel writers are repeatedly trying to remind us about these, with these resurrection narratives? Be surprised by the resurrection. Don't think you've got it yet. Because if you do, then it's more than likely that you haven't. Forget everything you thought you knew about God. There's so much more to this Jesus than you can possibly imagine. The resurrection is surprising. And none of the gospel writers, I think, pronounces this surprise as emphatically as John. Now, if you were here last time I preached, and better still, if you still remember, way back at the start of January, we reflected on the opening of John's gospel. We saw how John juxtaposed the lofty poetry of the first five verses, which described the resplendent, transcendent, awesome wonder of the word that put the very stars in the sky with the harsh, earth-shattering reality of verse 14. The word became flesh. And we considered how it was not in spite of God's transcendence and glory that he became as one of us, but it was because of it. In short, the incarnation shattered any preconceptions we ever held about who God is. And now, right at the end of this gospel, John is hammering home the same point. He is continuing to surprise us. I mean, think about it. Jesus has risen from the tomb. He has looked death square in the eye. Jesus has wrestled with the prince of this world and has emerged victorious. We might expect then that he would return to really shake things up a bit to finally bring to reality that kingdom he had spoken of. We might imagine him going to Rome and kicking Caesar off his throne to take his rightful place at king. But Jesus does none of these things. Instead, he has a barbecue on the beach with his friends. No thunderbolts from the sky, no legions of angels, just bread and fish. Don't think you've got it yet. There's more to this Jesus than you can imagine. So as we reflect on this passage from John's gospel this morning, I would like you to set aside the idea that this is a parable, an allegory, or a spiritual metaphor. 
We're not going to be considering the symbolic meaning of the net that isn't torn, despite the large haul of fish, though many have found significance in it. Nor are we going to ruminate on the special significance of the number 153, even though many renowned theologians have thought on this point. Well, in fact, I'll mention St. Augustine, because he had a theory that is as spectacular as it is ridiculous. He believed that 153 was a symbolic number, arrived at by, wait for it, remembering that there are 10 commandments, seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, so 10 plus 7 is 17, and if you add the integers from 1 to 17, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, etc., you arrive at precisely 153. Now, I think we'll leave signs and symbols aside. Instead, I would like you to embrace the ordinariness of this encounter with the risen Christ. Take the story at face value. As we consider how the risen Jesus chose to meet with his disciples and how he continues to meet with us. Because one thing is sure, this is no Jack and the Beanstalk fairy tale. Jesus is risen and continues to meet with each one of us today if we would only be open to the surprise. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. Believe me. It's kind of fun to say that. In the face of such brash arrogance, it's hard to feel, it's hard not to feel that a little bit of losing might be good for Donald J. Trump. But whatever our feelings about politicians, losing an election must be a uniquely devastating and disorientating experience that few of us can ever imagine. Helen Clark is a former Labour MP, and she describes it as feeling like one of the undead. She writes, losing a seat is easy, but living after losing a seat, it's not. You wake up the next morning with the task of filling it, and then the afternoon, and then the evening. Suddenly, life is about existing rather than living. One minute you're in the thick of it, the next year a political irrelevance. Now I mention this because it helps me to think what it must have been like for Peter and the other disciples at this point in Jesus' gospel, or in John's gospel. In the space of a few days, their whole world has been turned upside down. Everything they thought they knew, everything they thought they believed, has been tipped on its head. Peter must have felt this most acutely. He was the one who first responded to the Lord's call, leaving all he held precious in the world on the promise of a few words. He was the one who dropped his nets at the shore of the Galilean Sea to go and fish for the kingdom. Peter was the rock of the church, the one who trusted enough to get out of the boat, the one who promised Jesus that he would never leave his side. And yet it was Peter who denied Jesus. It was Peter, when the going got tough, who swore he never knew him. How must he have felt then, when he heard that Jesus had risen? When he ran to the tomb to find find the discarded linen? What must he have thought, as he watched Thomas touch the pierced hands and wounded sides of the crucified and humiliated Christ, standing in the flesh before his very eyes? Surely, Peter, like the women at the tomb, 
must have been terrified. His wonder at the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, mixed with fear for what it might mean. His joy at the Lord's return, tinged with sorrow and shame at his 11th hour denial. Jesus may be risen, but Peter is in the depths. He is not the man he was before. His adolescent audacity, his naive enthusiasm, all the qualities that made him so bold in his discipleship have been crucified with his Lord. Like the other disciples, Peter is left feeling confused and lacking direction. And so as days pass without another encounter with Jesus, Peter decides to return to what he knows best. He and a few of the other disciples take up their nets once more and get back in the boat. They sail out into the night, into the darkness and vastness of the lake, because they don't know what else to do. They are without a captain, floating on a sea of doubt and worry and defeat. But it's here. It's here, John tells us, that Jesus meets them. Right at the moment when they are perhaps at their lowest. After a frustrating, fishless night drifting on a dark sea, Jesus is waiting on the shore, blowing on some smouldering embers that ignite into bright golden flames in the darkness, as if to signal the dawn light that is just breaking behind him. In the midst of their darkness, Jesus is light. I did say we would set aside metaphorical readings, but the rich symbolism of this scene is just too hard to ignore. Because John seems to be mirroring, mirroring, sorry, Genesis 1 at this moment. Darkness is made light. Friedrich Buechner puts it like this. The Old Testament begins with darkness and the last of the Gospels ends with it. The darkness of Genesis is broken by God in great mystery speaking the word of creation. Let there be light. The darkness of John is broken by the flicker of charcoal fire on the sand. Jesus meets his disciples in the depths of their darkness, in the midst of their fear and confusion and chaos and despair. And just as he commanded the sun to illuminate the first creation, Jesus now stands as the sun who heralds the first dawn of the new creation. But let's come back to earth for a moment, because John is not in the realm of metaphysics here. This is not high theology. This is earthy stuff. The word made flesh lights a campfire at the side of a lake for his friends. There is no preaching here, no parables, no philosophy, just plain hospitality. As Beekner explains, The original creation of light itself is almost too extraordinary to take in. This little cookout on the beach is almost too ordinary to take seriously. But isn't this where we discover the surprise? Isn't the power of this encounter with the risen Christ in the very ordinariness of it? Jesus is not doing what we in our fallen imaginations would expect toppling dictators and righting wrongs. The powers of this world have already been defeated on the cross. 
No, what's going on here is much less spectacular, but just as important. Look closely at what happens. Jesus comes right alongside the disciples, exactly where they are. He meets them in their pain. He offers them hospitality. As they sit, he says very little. He listens and is patient. And then, in the sharing of the fish and in the breaking of the bread, in the communion of the meal, he creates a space for the disciples to unburden. This is where the metaphor becomes meat. It is in this simple, ordinary meal, in fellowship and communion with each other, that the disciples learn what it means for darkness to become light. In this space, they find the restoration and reconciliation they have been longing for, but not in the way they expected. In this space, Peter is able to confess, Lord, you know I love you, once for each of his denials. In this space, he experiences forgiveness and renewed purpose. Feed my sheep, Jesus tells him taking him out of his introspection and spiritual isolation back into service of the kingdom. From darkness into light. That's what the story of Easter is all about. It's what the gospel is all about. It's a metaphor that is used in almost every book of the New Testament, though sometimes framed in different terms. John's epistle speaks about fear and love. The parables of Jesus speak of hardness of heart and hearing. Paul speaks of slumber and wakefulness, of blindness and restored sight. Whatever the terms, they are all metaphors for the flesh and bones truth that comes in Jesus Christ. In Christ's risen body, he brings life where there is death. In the most literal sense possible. But the real surprise of the resurrection is that it promises more than eternal life in the new creation. It promises life right here and now. A thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, says Jesus. But I came to give life, life in all its fullness. Too often, I think we fail to see the surprise. Like the disciples, we retreat into the same old patterns of our lives into the darkness that we have become accustomed to. It might not be fishing, but it might be the distraction of work. It might be worry about a family member, or taking pleasure in righteous indignation, or wallowing in guilt that we can't lay to rest, or retreating into the anonymity of the online world. Whatever is your fishing boat, The risen Christ is here to draw you out of your isolation an introspection into community and fellowship. He beckons each one of us to relinquish our deep-seated fears and seek love. He calls us to let go of our bitterness to embrace forgiveness. He bids us turn from despair towards hope. He reaches out to pull us up from the shadows of our shame into the dignity of his light. This is the surprise of resurrection, that our relationship with the Father has been restored. To quote Rowan Williams just one more time, 
It's the recreating of relationship, of trust and love, on the far side of the most extreme human realities. Suffering, abandonment, death. That is what the resurrection story points us to. It is this, in this story of the disciples' ordinary and yet extraordinary encounter with the risen Christ that we are reminded of what the resurrection means for us in the here and now. Just as the risen Christ was present with the disciples, he is present also with us through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in each one of us. We may not encounter Christ in his physical body, but we meet him in the body of the church. The French Catholic theologian Louis-Marie Chauvet puts it like this. The absent one is present in his sacrament, which is the church. The church reading the scriptures with him in mind. The church repeating his gestures in memory of him. The church living in the sharing between brothers and sisters in his name. It is in these forms of witness by the church that Jesus takes on a body and allows himself to be encountered. My Presbyterians might have a few things to say um, to Chauvet about his notion of sacrament. But he does remind us of the truth we find in John 21. Christ is present in the church. And Christ is present in Fitzroy. He is present when we pastor to each other in the welcome area after the service. He is present when we join our voices in praise. And when we minister to each other in prayer. He is present when we disciple to each other in our home groups or when we chew the theological fat in speaking of faith. He is present when we dip bread into soup in the Alexander Hall and when we break bread and drink wine around this table. I think this is what John is trying to remind us in this story, which is traditionally called the miraculous catch of fish. But the miracle, I think, is not in the fish. The real miracle, the real surprise, is that the risen Christ is in his church today, just as he was present with his disciples then. So if you want to be surprised by resurrection, you just have to look around you. Amen.